by Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. Today, we welcome Sue Hoppen. Sue is a nationally recognized expert on military spouse and family issues. She has more than 20 years of experience developing programs focusing on military issues, serving as spokesperson, and reaching out to train top-tier military-affiliated groups, veteran and military services organizations, and key leadership within major military commands. Sue is the co-author of A Family's Guide to the Military for the popular Dummy series and the founder of the National Military Spouse Network, a professional development and networking membership organization supporting the professional career and entrepreneurial goals of military spouses. Sue currently serves as a member of the Veterans Advisory Committee on Education for the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. She was a presidential appointee to the Board of Visitors of the United States Air Force Academy and served as the first Deputy Director for Spouse Outreach for the Military Officers Association of America, known as MOA for short. And she was charged with creating and spearheading military spouse initiatives for the 375,000 member association. Sue and I met when she was at MOA and we profiled her relaunch success story there. I also served as an advisor on career continuity issues to the National Military Spouse Network organization that Sue founded and runs. Sue, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Oh, Carol, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, we are thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you. And I want to start by asking you to please take us through your career path before your husband began military service. And then once he was serving, where were you living and what did you do during all of those years? Sure. So I met my husband when he was still a student at the Air Force Academy. And I was actually a year behind him as a student at the University of Denver, just up the road. So when he started his Air Force career, he was at flight school in Oklahoma, and I was still in school in Denver. So by the time he finished his flight school and went to his first assignment, I had just finished school, and I was either headed to graduate school or law school. Um, But, you know, life happens, and we ended up getting married and having a son within a year, and, you know, then all best intentions of going to school kind of went out the window when I started following my service member around the world. Mm-hmm. We started at Eglin Air Force Base and there wasn't much I could do there with my degree in international relations. So I did what a lot of people do and went to temp jobs, right? I connected with Kelly Services and I found a job as a front office person, um, front office, front office manager. I feel like managers too elevated of a word for what I did. I minded this while they were all gone for an insurance company. And that was really my first um, job that, you know, it went from temp to perm. And then from there, we went to McConnell Air Force Base and we had a young son. My husband was deployed constantly. He likes to joke that we were there for three years. Garrett and I were there for three years and he spent one year there spending the other two years deployed in the desert. Mm. Following McConnell, we went overseas to Kadena Air Base in Okinawa, Japan. Beautiful country, lots of travel opportunities, not a lot of 
work opportunities due to the SOFA status, which is, you know, an issue that faces military spouses whenever they go overseas. Wait, what is SOFA? Can you just explain that for our audience, what it stands for? Absolutely. It's called the Status of Forces Agreement, which dictates Mm -hmm. um, what service members and spouses can do overseas. Um, And military spouse employment is a very tiny part of the SOFA. And that kind of regulates whether or not you can work while you're in that country. Ah, got it. Thank you. Sure. So I found myself teaching English as a second language on the economy to um, Japanese students who wanted to learn how to speak English. And then, you know, by the time our son was able to go to school full time and I was ready to relaunch back into the workforce, we got another overseas assignment to Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Mm -hmm. Again, not a lot of opportunities there for a professional spouse unless you wanted to work on the installation or for one of the defense contractors, which was not something that I had explored at that age. Um, Our son was also young. And then um, we happened to be there during the advent of 9-11, which the whole world changed. Mm -hmm. And being overseas when 9-11 occurred, that added an extra security of safety protocols and so on. And working was just not practical. Mm -hmm. After Ramstein, we actually came back to the States and settled in the DC area, which is where I'm from originally. So I thought, you know, I was so excited. We're finally going back to my hometown. At the time, I, um, when we were at Ramstein, I'd done a master's degree with my husband. So I was coming back with a fresh new degree. I spoke three languages. I still speak three languages. I thought people would be waiting in line to hire me. That was mm-hmm. not the case. That was not the case. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you were there in DC, what happened after that? Did you keep moving around or were you there for an extended period? So we thought we were actually just going to be here for three years and then we were going to move. But um, we decided that our son really liked um, the area. You know, our family was here. He loved the schools. There are a lot of military state department children, people who had been overseas. So um, there was a lot of diversity in the population in the schools. So he really loved it. He didn't want to move. And so we had decided that we were just going to homestead here, meaning we were going to spend more than three years here. And my husband could move if he wanted to, but we were going to stay. Um, but we still thought we were going to be subject to another move. But in the end, we ended up staying here until we retired. Did not know that when we got here. So when we got here, I went into the job search with the notion that I was looking for a job for the next three years. Got it. And so what did you end up doing? So I ended up working at MOA, but that was actually not my dream job. My dream job was to be an analyst for the FBI. And so I applied for government um, for a government job. And I was actually in the application process. And this was when they were accelerating hiring processes. So, you know, I was notified that, hey, you're picked as an alternate, but, you know, we really need to hire a lot of people right now. So this was in the early 2000s. We really need to hire a lot of people right now. So we're going to put your application through with the primary and you guys are both going to get your security clearances and then we'll see where it lands after this is all done. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, I think it was like four months, which I think is accelerated for the government, but it was like four months. Yeah. They said, you know what? Um, The primary came through, he checked out. And so we're going to offer him the job in DC, but would you you know, would you be open to a job somewhere else? Because we really like your package. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, something else I can hate my husband for. <laughs> I can't yeah. do a job. <laughs> you know, it was one of those frustrating moments where I'm just look, I'm 
I'm on the phone with the person. I'm just thinking, what do you not understand about the fact that I'm a military spouse and I really want to live with my family? I can't, I can't go. Right. And I still remember him at the time asking, well, do you want to know where it is? And I'm like, was well, it DC, Maryland or Virginia? He's like, no, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to know where it is because if you tell me it's Hawaii, I'm going to have to divorce my husband. <laughs> so you never found out where it was? No. And I'm, I, you know, and I never regretted that, but that was, right. I mean, that was a crushing blow because, you know, yeah, for, sure. for so many months and I mean the polygraph and everything. And while I was going through the process, I, you know, I had another temp job that I was working. Um, I was working for um, a computer software company and, um, you know, I wasn't looking for a job because I knew I had a job to pay bills now and I was waiting for my big job. And so I was just going to events and networking. And I went to an event at the um, National Defense University. My mentor was teaching there. She said, you should really come and learn about Congress and the military. There's a really great session. Um, The one that's being taught tomorrow is about lobbyists. You should come and Mm -hmm. listen to speakers. And I met a speaker from MOA, from the Military Officers Association. Um, and you know, she was so impressive because we met, you know, they, we learned from two different speakers. One was a lobbyist who was a lobbyist for hire. So they just lobby on whatever issues they get hired to lobby for with MOA. The lobbyist was there. They're like, we only have one issue we care about, which is military families and veterans. So Mm -hmm. service members. So everything we do is to advocate for a better quality of life for them. I was so taken by mission that I walked up to her afterwards and said, here's my business card. If you ever need a volunteer, if you ever need someone to lick stamps back when we lick stamps, um, um, (laughs) give me a call. So the next day she actually called and said, we'd like to hire you. And I'm actually not looking for a job, but thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like I got several calls from them. And so by the time the FBI had said, you know, that they weren't going to hire me for that initial job, Mm -hmm. it was devastating. But I'm like, I'm ready to work. I was ready to work yesterday. So I called Moa and I said, I don't know what the job is. I don't care. I'm ready to work. I'm all in. And Mm -hmm. that's how I got the job. Wow. Well, let me take you back to one thing you said earlier. You said my mentor told me to go to this event. So can you tell us, like, how did you get this mentor? What was that over a period of time? And and what happened there? We had met when we were in Okinawa. And um, she was actually the spouse of our commander at Okinawa Air Base, um, Air Force Base. So um, the general in charge of the installation, that's the commander. Um, she was his wife and she had actually taken time off of her job, you know, working as a, as a professor at NDU national defense university to accompany him to Okinawa. So she was already a professional woman in her own right. She used to be the chief of staff for Senator Leahy. She worked on the ag committee. I mean, she was Mm -hmm. a woman who was on her own career trajectory, took the time off, married her husband later in life, the second marriage for both of them. And she went and like, she was such a breath of fresh air because she landed on this installation. She didn't um, bring any biases into the situation and she was just a problem solver and I could really relate to her. And so, um, you know, I just would look for opportunities to engage with her in conversations. And I served as the 
president of the Spouse Club at Kadena. So we had an opportunity to work together a lot. Um, and then when we came back to DC, we stayed connected. And pretty much if she told me there was something that I needed to do, I would do it. Um, you know, anytime I was going to make a career change, I would just give her a call and, uh, you know, ask for advice. And then, and in years later, she would become my sponsor as well to where when an opportunity came up in the Obama administration, she would actually put my name in for positions. Her mm. husband went on to be the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Um, and so she was actually um, the person who encouraged us to reach out at NMSN, to reach out to the State Department, to bring State Department spouses into the fold of the work that we were doing. So um, I've been really fortunate to have really great mentors and sponsors throughout my career. All right. So we'll talk about the National Military Spouse Network, the NMSN, in just a minute. But I have one more question for you. And that was when you were interviewing for this FBA, uh, FBI job that ended up not working out. And then you had that exchange about the MOA job and ultimately they hired you. Was there any discussion at all about the fact that you had, you know, career breaks and career continuity issues or I'm guessing the MOA people both threw or thrilled to have you because you were a military spouse yourself. Was there any discussion about that with the FBI job? There wasn't actually with the FBI job and it didn't become an issue until the job was actually offered to me. Okay. Um, and so I really respect that about them. No, that never became an issue. And I don't know if that's a norm or whether um, that was an anomaly, but now that you mention it, that never came up. So interesting. And then the MOA job, you know, you, you're, you have the lived experience of the audience that they want you to serve. So that makes a lot of sense. But when you said yes to that job, was there a discussion? Did they say, how long are you going to be in the area? And is this, this a short-term thing for you? Because, Or was that still at the time where you didn't know if you were going to be there more than a couple of years? You know, it never came up. And I will tell you that they didn't offer, um, they didn't hire me for the job that I ultimately ended up holding. They hired me to be an admin, like a super admin. Ah, okay. And like, let's rewind to that job that I, ho that I held at Eglin where I was the super admin, right? And so- mm -hmm. Even being lacking confidence, I knew I could do the job because I'd done the job. Um, and remember, I said I didn't even care what the job was. I literally did not ask what the job was. <laughs> oh, okay. So, how long were you were you in the super admin job, and then what happened after that? I was in that job for about a month, and the only discussion point that they had when I was doing the interview was they were a little concerned that I had a lot of education for the job that they were going to um, offer me. You mean like you were overqualified? They thought that I would keep looking for another job. Um, mm -hmm. They weren't worried that I was overqualified because they knew, you know, that military spouses are underemployed just by virtue of the field that they serve. Um, mm -hmm. But they were concerned that I would keep looking for jobs. But I wasn't in that job very long because I was doing the job and then I realized that it could be automated and, you know, I, I was listening to what was going on around me and I realized that it was an organization in transition. It used to be named TROA and it went from the Retired Officers Association to the Military Officers Association of America. And they were trying to reach out to the currently serving, but I was looking at what they were doing and marketing and I realized, but you're not doing the right things. Like you need to, if you're going to reach out to the active duty service members, they're not reading your magazines. They're not getting your emails. They don't care. They're mm -hmm. serving their country. Like they don't care about your advocate. They don't, just don't care. The people who care are the spouses. Like they need all your, mm -hmm. they need all your advocacy. Like they care. And so like, 
um, knowing that I just talked to my boss and I said, look, I have a proposal for you. You're paying me anyway. I'd like to do some pilot programs around this because I think it could really help with your numbers and I could still do it and still do the job you hired me for. If we do it this way, we can automate in this manner. And if everybody spends 15 minutes of their week doing these other reporting things, which they'd have to do anyway, I think I could do both jobs. You don't have to pay me more. Let's mm-hmm. give it a try. Mm-hmm. So you made a you made them an interesting proposal. Basically, you made them an offer they couldn't refuse, right? Who would say no to that? I guess I'm glad they didn't refuse. <laughs> so okay, so you ended up doing that, and right. then when did you end up switching jobs? Um, I don't even remember how quickly it was, but it was pretty fast. It was in the first six months easily, or maybe three or four months. Um, and so they made me an assistant director, and then over the course of almost five years, I think I was like maybe three or four months shy of five years, they, um, they kept giving me, uh, promotions and then broke down walls to create an office for me, um, to make me equal to my peers at the organization. So I could have a seat Mm. at the table. That's just a great, great story. Um, Sue, you know, so many uh, military spouses over the years and are somewhat of an expert of, well, you're an expert on military families and military spouses and an expert on military career arcs and career continuity. Can you talk a little bit about the two stages of military spouse uh, career paths? One, when their spouse is on active duty, and the other one is once the spouse retires from active duty. First, the one while they're on active duty and, and while spouses are moving around. How do... What kinds of examples or roles do you see spouses take to maintain career continuity when they can work? You know, it's interesting, and that's a really interesting question. And the most interesting nuanced part of that question is the fact that I think you almost have to bifurcate spouses in today's world versus like when I was coming up in my generation, because I think technology and societal changes have caught up almost in the military spouse experience to normalize issues that we had. So, I mean, like we're so much more open to telework opportunities now, you know, because of COVID and even before COVID. Um, right. that I think some of the um, situations that I had to deal with when I was coming up don't necessarily exist now. So I will just, um, you know, put that disclaimer out there. Um, so I'll talk about my generation first. And this is the generation, you know, my husband's been retired like seven years now. Um, so he served for 22 years. So this was up until 10 years ago, right? Maybe five years. I think spouses, the biggest issue is the stigma of a military spouse. Because military spouses move every 18 months to three years, there are huge gaps in their um, resumes. We didn't have LinkedIn back then, right? And we didn't have the ability to really network at the next location before we moved. In military terminology, we call that a PCS. But okay. now spouses are able to start networking at their next installation, even before they get there, right? And employers are more apt to, if they have a good employee and the spouse has done her, her or his due diligence and you know signed on with an employer that has multiple outlets around the country or maybe um, have a virtual component to their employment, then they're able to move that job with them. Or else mm-hmm. the employee will, you know, because 
DOD has something called the Military Spouse Employment Partnership. You know, these are companies that have signed on to hire military spouses. The Chamber of Commerce has Hiring Our Heroes, which has a commitment from companies who are, you know, want to hire military spouses and then want to maintain them through transitions, right? So all these experiences and all these resources now exist to help the military spouse transition from location to location. Still not simple, but more doable now, I think, than it was 10 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. We also dealt with entrepreneurship wasn't really viable and back then, or we didn't know about it. And so it was, you know, you were always looking for jobs. Nowadays, military spouses understand that they might wear several different hats. And so in one location, they might work for a government contractor, right? Or another location, they might work for the federal government or a company. In another location, they might act as a freelancer and still work for their company, but as a freelancer. And, right. you know, so they're, they're more fluid in the way they think about their career. Um, which I don't think that existed up until like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a good point to uh, talk about how things have evolved in a relatively short time at, to work in favor of the military spouse and a virtual career. Right. And so, and then all that changes once a spouse, um, you know, the service member spouse retires, because I think there's actually three, um, three times because when the service members and going through the transition of retiring, that is so jarring on the whole family that I think whatever job or business the spouse has at that time is also going to go through some upheaval because in an ideal world, the spouse would already have a career and be making some money that she or he could contribute to the financial well um, readiness of the family so that when the service member is in transition, they can just live the same lifestyle they've been living the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then after it's all over, they should normalize again. But if the spouse isn't able to have that career where she or he is actually able to contribute in a meaningful manner to the financial readiness of the family, then there's another situation. And then once they normalize, then the spouse is looking to restart his or her career. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the number of times that you're going to have to relaunch actually depends on the way you look at your career and your career trajectory and the way you map out what you're going to do based on the life cycle of your service member's service, if that makes sense. Yes. Got it. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the National Military Spouse Network? Uh why did you start it? How did you start it? How old is it? And what does the NMSN, as we'll call for for the abbreviation, what does the NMSN do? Sure. So I started the National Military Spouse Network 10 years ago. We're exactly 10 years old this year. We're very excited Mm. about that. Thank you so much for being part of our journey, Carol. Oh, it's been a privilege to uh, even contribute a teeny amount to it. So I love watching watching this evolve from, from the very early days. So selfishly, I started it because I had such a, a tough time finding a job when we came to DC. And I just thought, this is my town. I grew up here. This is where I come from. Why is it so hard for me to find a job? I have a binder that's about an inch and a half thick of rejection letters. I keep it in case I ever lose any of my passion. I'm like, why do we do this? And I look at the binder. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember why we do this now. Um And I just didn't want another spouse to have to go through that. I just thought it was ridiculous that it would take me 18 
months to get a job because it's not like I didn't have the connections. It's not like I didn't have the background. It's not like I didn't have the qualifications. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have the right networks and the right know-how. And so I didn't know how a spouse who wasn't from this area was ever going to survive here if they couldn't connect with somebody who could kind of guide them. So very simply, I just wanted to connect my friends who needed jobs with my friends who had jobs. But when I started that route, I realized that military spouses weren't career ready because they didn't know that people were actually looking for them. And again, this was 10 years ago. Um, And so it's almost like we had to take it back to square one and start these conferences to teach them everything they need to know for their professional development on salary negotiations, um, what to wear, how to network, et cetera, like everything. And then we had to bring employers to the table. Um, And so you know, you look at the playing field now and you're like, there's so many players in the spouse employment arena that I can't believe that this was lacking back then, but it wasn't, mm. it really didn't mm-hmm. exist. And so we're really happy that, you know, everybody is out here now doing all this great work, but back then it was a real need. And so that's why I started. Right. Uh, and how many people are in the network now? So we have about 20,000 people in our community who access us either through our website or on social media platforms or at our events. Um, And our recent white paper, the 2020 white paper, um, has been accessed by over 44,000 people. And what's the white paper on? So we started writing a white paper um, two years ago because we looked at all the research and um, studies that were being done around military spouse employment. And they all seem to stop short of making recommendations. And we're like, we could do this. Like we can take all the research and analyze it and spit out some recommendations based on the gaps and opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so um, the other thing that we really wanted to do was when we wrote our white paper, we wanted to make sure that we offered all the solutions in layman's terms. So we just wanted to make it simple to understand. And we just wanted to say, hey, here are five recommendations. If you do these five things, we will it will help move the needle. And then I guess other people, um, it resonated with people because the first year we put it out, every recommendation we made was introduced as potential legislation. Mm. So we were pretty thrilled about that. I mean, you know, that's what NMSN really does. We really work to make sure that the people who are policymakers and in a position to change, um, you know, military spouse employment for the better, that they understand the challenges that military spouses face. And then in, in addition to understanding the challenges, we like to bring them possible solutions. Got it. Um, well, let me ask you this, Sue. You, When I read your bio at the intro, you have so many significant volunteer roles uh, at, that you're currently doing. And I know we didn't even touch the surface about what you've done in the past. And I wanted to know if you could comment on the whole concept of strategic volunteering and the impact that it has had on your relaunch and on your career path since then. Sure. I wouldn't have a career if I hadn't engaged in strategic volunteering. And that sounds like um you know, a bold statement to make, but it's absolutely true. Um, when I went to pull together my resume for the um, for the FBI application, I worked with a resume writer and he actually pulled out the things I'd done, you know, to come up with analyst bullets. And yes, education was certainly part of it, but if I hadn't done the strategic volunteering, I would have missed out on an entire segment of... Um, the application that required certain skill sets that I m- attained through strategic volunteering. So mm-hmm. I'm a huge proponent of it. And I really think that 
um, for anyone, not just military spouses, but for anyone out there who is in a position where, you know, they might be engaged in elder care or staying home with children. I really encourage people to engage in strategic volunteering. And I know you do too, but I think it's really important. And we always tell our NMSN community, it's like, understand that not all volunteering opportunities are equal. Um, If you're in a financial field, look for something that will allow you to stay within that field. You know, maybe it's tax help on the installation where, you know, they're helping prepare tax, um, tax, uh, tax paperwork for, you know, Mm -hmm. or if you're in, um, event planning, there are plenty of events that take place. Or if you're in marketing, I mean, there's so many opportunities to engage. People are always looking for force multipliers and you're going to be able to hone your skills and stay relevant. And, I'm really, really, really grateful that I happened to fall into strategic volunteering. And that was purely by accident. And I just thank whatever pointed me that way. And I mean, I started volunteering because they pay for childcare. Um, you know, my husband mm. was employed, my son was young. I was starting to speak in not full sentences. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> I needed to get out of the house. And someone told me, and you know, we were poor. Like we had our son when, you know, my husband was a second Lieutenant, which is very young in the military. And so we had no discretionary income. Everything went to diapers. Right. And so it wasn't like I was going to pay for childcare so I could have a break. But when they said, Hey, you know, like if you volunteer, they pay for your childcare. That's all it took. That hooked me. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. the ability to make an impact kept me. And can you give us an example of an early volunteer role that you had that was relevant later, for example, when you um, applied for the MOA job? Sure. So I um, served as the president of the spouse clubs often. I don't know why. I think it's because um, I was the only person to ever make eye contact with people when that position came up. But um, <laughs> You know, but that meant that I was leading volunteers and that meant that I was in charge of a budget, you know, a philanthropy budget and an operational budget. It meant mm-hmm. that we on X number of events per year. And it meant that I had to be able to brief leadership because, you know, we had to, um, we were accountable to the installation. Um, I had to understand and read contracts as we were negotiating our nonprofit status, um, budgets. I mean, it was all in there and, it was just, you know, it's just changing your mindset and the way you look at it. I, you know, it's a, oh, I was just the president of an OWC, Officers Wives Club at the time. Now it's Spouses Club. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, if you break it down to the volunteer opportunity, to the actual skill sets, there was marketing in there. There was publicity. There was negotiations. There's event management. There's volunteer management. Um, all sorts of bullets. And so valuable. So I was able to do that several times. And then, um, I also would give advice. So people would call and the calls just got, and they grew in terms of, you know, the frequency, but also in terms of, um, the people who are calling at the end of, not the end of the volunteer work, cause I still volunteer. Like even now, you know, I get calls from, the government, like the White House calls, um, mm-hmm. because they need specific advice on specific issues. And so um, it's always weird when that happens. But you know, you just take the call, you give advice to the best of your ability. And then you find yourself an appointee, and giving advice on a more um, frequent um, time, you know, like with more frequency. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting, like volunteering, I- I've always been a huge proponent of it. I believe in it. I all um I think it's because I grew up understanding that um too much is given, much is expected. And you know, you kind of live that ethos, that servant leadership. And if you're in a position 
and help you should and it's all the other cliches but it feel it makes you feel so good to know that you're doing something to help other people because i you know the notion of doing good while doing well i love it i mean i think that's why we started nmsn as a social enterprise right because um it exactly fits into you know the way we live our lives Right. Now, Sue, we're we're running out of time now. So I'm going to kind of combine my last two questions because, uh, you know, you relaunched your career at MOA 15 years ago now in 2005. And I wanted to ask you, like, looking back on, on, on your relaunch, is there anything you would have done differently? But it's almost the same question that we ask all of our podcast guests, which is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? So just want to know between those two questions, uh, can you uh, give some advice or talk about something that you might've done differently? Sure. Um, I think some things that I would have done differently is I shouldn't have waited to start. I think I was just waiting to start my career when my spouse retired and that was foolish. I should have done what I could to chip away at it um, throughout the Mm. years. I mean, I started, I think, you know, five years before he retired, but I should have done more, right? Um, I'm really fortunate that I fell into strategic volunteering, but I think people should put that into their toolkit of ways to stay relevant. And um, that would be one of my um, recommendations to stay relevant. But the other thing I should have done was I should have been better at keeping up with industry trends, meaning salary, um, you know, like what's the current salary, how do you negotiate, compensation packages, like the compensation packages that exist now are different than, you know, when I relaunched 15 years ago. And so I think a better understanding of those would help. Mm -hmm. And you have to trust, but verify, especially for the people coming out of the military community, our community is a bit of a bubble. Most people live by a certain creed that involves like honesty and integrity. So entering the workforce, I trusted everyone and took them at their word. And it sounds really naive, but like not everyone is an honest broker and, you know, like just run into dishonest people and people might be less than moral. I know that sounds really crazy because everybody's like, you have to understand that. Like, that's just a matter of course. But coming out of the military community after you're there for like 20, 30 years, you kind of, you know, it's not homogenous, but on some things about honesty and integrity, it's kind of homogenous, right? Uh And so I think the other thing, the um, the final thing that I would recommend for people is Please stay relevant and keep everything up to date even before you relaunch. I mean, be disciplined about keeping up with your connections on LinkedIn and in person. Um, you know, you don't do that when you need them. You just keep maintain those relationships throughout. And then I think that includes um, maintain up to date bios and headshots because you never know when an opportunity is going to arise and you want to be ready. Right. Well, so much great advice there condensed into a, a small amount of time. Sue, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And as we're uh, ending, I want to know if you can tell our audience how they can find out about NMSN, the National Military Spouse Network. Sure. We'd love it if you guys would connect with us and learn more. Um, You can go to our website, which is nationalmilitaryspousenetwork.org, or you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram, or Twitter. And it's um, NMSN. E-T-W-O-R-K, NMS Network. Um, We'd love to connect with you all. And thank you so much for this opportunity, Carol. It's been so lovely catching up with you. It's been lovely having the conversation, Sue. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for listening to 321 I Relaunched, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I Relaunch, and your host. 
For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.